Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. This podcast is proudly sponsored by Ancestry.com.au. You've seen the faded sepia photograph, but how tall was your great-grandfather? How much did he weigh? What colour were his eyes? And did he really have a mermaid tattoo? These are the sort of details that can turn a family tree into a colourful and compelling personal history. And they're the sort of details you can sometimes discover in military and or police records at Ancestry.com.au. I use Ancestry constantly to research and write this podcast, and it could help you piece your past together too. For more information, go to Ancestry.com.au because there could be more to your story. Forgotten Australia is written and produced by me, Michael Adams, in the Blue Mountains of New South Wales on land traditionally owned by the Darug and Gundungurra people. I pay my respect to Aboriginal elders past and present. It's just before 9am on the 3rd of January 1931 in Bondi Junction in Sydney. Although the worsening Great Depression is making life ever tougher, with more and more people out of work every week, you might not sense this on Oxford Street where the footpaths bustle with shoppers this summery Saturday morning. The first traffic lights are still two years in Sydney's future, so out at the centre of the junction, it's up to New South Wales Police Constable Norman Allen to keep the traffic moving. In his white helmet, blue tunic and trousers, he cuts a fine figure as he conducts a stream of cars, trucks, motorbikes, horse sulkies and trams. Waiting for one of these trams are two off-duty police officers, Constable Ernest Andrews and his friend and roommate, Constable Adam Denham. Both men wear bathing suits beneath their civvies and carry towels because they're heading to the beach. Less than a mile south at Waverley Police Station, Constable Thomas Johnson is on duty and in uniform, though he could be forgiven if his mind is elsewhere because just a week ago, his wife gave birth to a son. Though the Great War has been over more than a dozen years now, each of these men is about to be touched by the long shadow the conflict continues to cast. And today, that long shadow takes the form of John Thomas Kennedy, a hulking and haunted man who's walking through the streets of Waverley towards Bondi Junction with a Bowie knife hanging from his belt, a 22 caliber repeater rifle in his hands and wartime delusions in his head. I'm Michael Adams and this is Forgotten Australia. 
Soon after the Great War started in August 1914, its battlefield carnage eclipsed anything the world had ever seen. With the death toll escalating from the tens of thousands to the hundreds of thousands and then into the millions and tens of millions, every combatant nation had to do everything possible to ensure a continuous supply of soldiers. As the war ground on, strategies to put men in uniform included ever more bloodthirsty propaganda, lowering the age and physical requirements to enlist, and conscription campaigns, successful in England, unsuccessful in Australia. But one of the most shameful recruitment methods originated in England right at the start of the war when an old British admiral named Charles Cooper Penrose Fitzgerald established the Order of the White Feather. Initially comprising a group of 30 women, the Order's mission was to give white feathers to men of service age who weren't in uniform in order to publicly and privately shame them for their supposed cowardice. Of course, aside from its intrinsic cruelty, the Order's members had no way of knowing whether their targets were essential war workers, whether they were soldiers on leave from the front or returned home with wounds, or whether they were unable to enlist for medical or psychological reasons. The widespread practice was very unpopular, but nevertheless found its way to Australia, where one of the many men taunted with white feathers was John Thomas Kennedy. What we know about Kennedy comes from what he later told police and what his siblings told newspapers that can today be found in the National Library of Australia's Trove database. John Thomas Kennedy was born in Sydney around 1888. He had three sisters and two brothers and was said to be fiercely devoted to his mother. After school, Kennedy, who grew to stand 6 foot 2 and weigh 16 stone, worked his way up in the printing trade. By 1914, he was one of Sydney's few colour printers, earning around £12 a week, which was big money in those days. Kennedy used part of his salary to ensure his beloved mother didn't want for anything. But when the Great War started, he was prepared to give up everything, even his life, to serve king and country. Trying to enlist, this large man was rejected for a very small reason. Varicose veins, which back then were attributed to long hours spent standing, which was what he had to do as a printer. But Kennedy wasn't taking no for an answer, and so he went to hospital and had his varicose veins stripped, which was a painful and costly procedure. Returning to the enlistment office, he was again rejected. Seeing John Kennedy on the street, young, big, fit-looking, but not in uniform, made someone wonder why he wasn't on the Western Front. Concluding that he was a coward, they sent him white feathers day after day. Like many other men treated this way, Kennedy felt ashamed, frustrated, and persecuted. 
Unlike most other men, he wasn't able to let these feelings go and console himself with the knowledge that he'd simply been treated unfairly. So, after a brief farewell to his family, John Kennedy left Sydney, not saying much of where he was headed or what he was going to do. As it turned out, he went to Canada, where he was accepted into the Northwest Mounted Police and trained as a marksman. He didn't tell his family where he was or write to them to even say he was alive. What he did write, though, were reams of poetic verses and philosophical prose. But Kennedy was never satisfied with his efforts and was in the habit of burning his writings. As the years passed, back in Sydney, his worried siblings hired private detectives to try to find some trace of their long-lost loved one. What they learned was that in the United States, a man named John Kennedy had been killed when anarchists bombed a building and there was some suggestion the dead man had been their brother. Then, in mid-1928, John Kennedy showed up in Sydney as suddenly as he'd left, springing himself on one of his sisters in the city office where she worked, saying, quote, Hello, I'm your brother. Don't you know me? Not having seen him for more than a decade and likely thinking he was dead anyway, this poor woman promptly fainted from shock. But Kennedy was in for a bigger shock when he found out that his beloved mother had been dead for eight years. With grief adding to his pre-existing mental woes, Kennedy became increasingly reclusive. His siblings didn't see him often, even though they all lived nearby in Sydney, but they knew that he still brooded over the white feathers he'd received more than a decade earlier. This found expression in a hatred for women, with him saying he wanted to kill women who used offensive language. Around March 1930, Kennedy moved into a single-fronted brick cottage in Lawson Street, Waverley. Beyond a bed, he didn't bother much with furnishings, not even rugs for the floorboards against the winter cold. Keeping to himself, he barely spoke to his neighbours and took long, solitary walks around the harbour, its beauty inspiring his poems and prose, which he'd promptly burn and send up the chimney as smoke. In mid-1930, Kennedy got a job as a letterpress machinist in Balmain with suburban newspaper proprietor Sid Smith. While he was expert in his work and obliging in his manner, Kennedy was also prone to strange moments of silence during which he'd just stare into space. Spooked by his behaviour, his boss let him go around September 1930. Living in isolation, Kennedy sank further into mental illness, obsessing over cigarettes, imagining that people wanted to poison him and harbouring increasingly militaristic fantasies. Although he was out of work, he was far from out of money. Kennedy had around £425 in the bank, which is nearly $40,000 today, and he used a small fraction of his funds to buy a 22 calibre repeater rifle. 
He also purchased dozens and dozens of boxes of ammunition until he had hundreds and hundreds of bullets stashed in every room of his house. Although Kennedy didn't speak to his neighbours, they were well acquainted with his eccentricities. With his chimney belching smoke even as spring warmth turned into summer heat and unaware he was incinerating his literary output, they speculated that only a man making illegal grog would need a fire in such weather. Then there was what Kennedy was seen doing in his backyard. Rifle on his shoulder, he'd march around on a little patch of grass as though out on a military parade ground, and he'd use his rifle to fire up to a hundred bullets a day on a mini shooting range he'd set up, propping garden tools and bricks as targets against a concrete slab that was soon riddled with bullet pockmarks. When a neighbour warned that he might kill or hurt himself or someone else with a ricochet, Kennedy's response was just to laugh. To another neighbour, he said he was reenacting the Anglo-Zulu War's famous 1879 Battle of Rourke's Drift. In addition to annoying his neighbours with frequent gunplay by day, at night, Kennedy launched into bizarre musical frenzies, blowing tunelessly on a tin whistle and hammering away at a set of jazz drums that he'd bought. Thomas King and his wife, who lived next door, bore the worst of it, kept awake night after night by these mad antics. Meanwhile, Mrs. French, who owned a grocery store near Kennedy's house, was wary of him because of another of his particular paranoias, and that was he'd never accept any food without interrogating her over whether it was bad. One time, he bought six ginger ale bottles but wouldn't take them until she reassured him that they didn't contain poison. In December 1930, John Kennedy's strange behaviour escalated. Every day for weeks, he'd be seen by Oxford Street shopkeepers, many of whom had to endure him demanding cigarettes or other goods and then refusing to pay for these things, shouting variations of, quote, I won't pay, I'm a communist. On New Year's Day 1931, Kennedy went into Mrs. French's store and asked the sales assistant, Mrs. Hay, for a packet of cigarettes. Then he refused to pay and, walking out, said she should, quote, charge them to the Supreme Court. Mrs. Hay didn't report him to the police, fearing that this big man might take revenge. It was a fair enough fear, too, because that day Kennedy was also seen marching up and down his street with his gun shouting drill orders. Another neighbour remarked, quote, it occurred to me that I should tell the police, but I thought people would only say that I was sticky-beaking. Two days later, on the morning of Saturday the 3rd of January 1931, John Kennedy, eyes red-rimmed, face dark with stubble, walked out of his Waverley house with his 22 repeater rifle in his hand and his Bowie knife hanging from his belt. Half a mile away at Bondi Junction, Mr. Horace Dibley was opening the Mick Simmons store that he managed. 
A few minutes after nine, he and his sales assistant, Miss Sales, were confronted by the rifle-toting Kennedy. As frightening as the prospect of a huge man with a gun and knife was, this didn't seem to be a robbery. Walking to the counter, Kennedy said he wanted 30 shillings worth of cigars and cigarettes. When Miss Sales gathered the order and placed the wrap package on the counter, Kennedy grabbed it and ran for the door, only to be stopped by Mr. Dibley, who bravely or foolishly blocked the exit. Mr. Dibley said, quote, What about paying for the tobacco? Kennedy laughed wildly and tossed the parcel back on the counter. He told Mr. Dibley, quote, I gave you the order for it. You be careful or you'll face the firing squad. Then he ran out, shouting, I'll see that your place is closed up. Mr. Dibley sent Miss Sales out in search of the nearest police officer. And that was Constable Norman Allen, directing traffic just 50 yards away. Norman Allen was born in Goulburn, New South Wales in November 1901, though his family would move to the North Coast where his father became well known as a livestock buyer. Finishing his schooling at Brisbane Grammar School, Norman for a while was employed in a bank and then quit that to work with his father on a property. Moving south to Sydney, he joined the New South Wales Police Force in May 1926 and served as a mounted officer. Yet Norman felt he had another calling, and that was to become an Anglican minister, and so he resigned from the police to pursue religious training. But it wasn't long before he changed his mind about being a man of the cloth and went back to the uniform. A New South Wales Police Gazette found at Ancestry.com.au shows that Norman was made a probationary constable on the 26th of September 1928, the same day as his friend Thomas Johnson, with both men assigned to the Waverley Station. And around this time, Norman and his wife Margaret had their first child. Now, from Miss Sal's, Constable Allen was hearing about a big, disturbed bloke with a rifle who, she said, had headed west along Oxford Street. Constable Allen told her, quote, Don't you worry, it won't take long to deal with him. According to Truth Newspaper's report, he smiled and said he knew this man by repute and then declared, quote, All right, I'll lock him up. However the conversation went, two newsboys with papers under their arms overheard it and, excited by the prospect of some cops and robbers action in their suburb, followed Constable Allen as he jumped on the footboard of a bus heading down Oxford Street. Within 200 yards, Constable Allen had caught up to Kennedy. According to the Sun newspaper, the constable saw the, quote, maniac loping along the footpath and aiming the rifle at terrified pedestrians. Others, not threatened with the rifle, considered that it was merely a joke. As Kennedy reached the government savings bank at the corner of Newland Street, Constable Allen jumped from the bus and threaded his way through the traffic to the footpath, with the two newsboys following him closely. 
Coming up behind Kennedy, the police officer didn't draw his revolver and instead put his hand on the man's shoulder. The Sydney Morning Herald reported Constable Allen as saying, quote, Just a minute, old man. You can't carry a rifle round the streets like this, you know. A few feet away, just inside a florist shop, a lad named Sid Stacker watched the policeman confront Kennedy. Young Stacker said, quote, The two seemed to be talking for a while when suddenly Kennedy raised the rifle and fired straight at the policeman. Shot point blank, Constable Allen staggered back, clutching his chest as Kennedy fired twice more. Sid Stacker, quote, The constable fell in a heap and Kennedy, after casually looking at him for a moment, commenced to walk quietly away towards the corner. The newsboys, who'd been two yards behind Constable Allen, ran for their lives. One scrambled into a chocolate shop and jumped under a counter. When the manager tried to shoo him out, he told her, quote, There's a dead man on the footpath. The manager ran out and saw the policeman on the ground. Constable Allen was still alive but terribly wounded and she tried to help by getting him a glass of water. Another witness phoned an ambulance. On a passing bus, Detective Constable Andrew McGill of Paddington Police Station had heard the shots, seen Constable Allen fall and clocked the gunman getting away. He jumped from the moving bus and chased after Kennedy, who, hearing footsteps behind him, whirled and raised the rifle. Unarmed, Detective Constable McGill stopped in his tracks. He asked Kennedy why he'd just shot a man. Eyes flashing with madness, Kennedy said, quote, I have passed sentence on him according to the law. You had better leave me alone. I am only exercising the law. Then Kennedy turned and walked slowly along Newland Street, chin tucked into his chest, swinging one arm wildly in the air. Pedestrians ran out of his way or took cover in doorways. Detective Constable McGill followed cautiously at a distance, and he himself was being followed by a young Bondi bloke named Steve Robinson, who'd witnessed the shooting and, hoping he could help out, had taken Constable Allen's pistol and joined the chase. Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince? They exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns. Back at Bondi Junction, off-duty constables Ernest Andrews and Adam Denham had heard the gunshots. The Sun newspaper reported Constable Andrews saying, quote, Come on, that sounds like a hold-up. We might be able to give a hand. The men ran and instead found Constable Allen on the footpath, in a pool of his own blood and surrounded by people. With an ambulance on the way, there was nothing they could do for him and they turned their attention to getting the shooter. A young man in the crowd said, quote, I know where the man lives. I'll show you the way into the back of his house. 
Ernest Andrews was 22 years old and a native of the Isle of Wight who emigrated to Australia in November 1928 and joined the New South Wales Police Force the following April. A single man, his only relative in Australia was a sister in Newcastle. Constable Andrews had seen some action in his brief police career. He'd been stationed at Rothbury during the December 1929 coal strike in which officers fired on protesters, killing one man and injuring 45. Known as, quote, the shot heard around Australia, this tragedy will be the subject of an upcoming side note episode. While there's no suggestion that Constable Andrews was one of the police responsible, it is likely that the us-versus-them mentality of the open warfare this confrontation resembled would have instilled in him a fierce devotion to his brother officers. And individually, Constable Andrews had demonstrated bravery. Just four months earlier, while on duty one night in Circular Quay, a man behaving strangely handed him a sealed envelope before hurrying away. Opening this envelope, Constable Andrews found a note that read, quote, This man is dangerous and carries a loaded revolver. Arrest him. Constable Andrews gave chase and arrested the disturbed man, finding that he did indeed have a loaded gun. Constable Andrews' mate, Adam Denham, who he shared a house with in Waverley, was also an immigrant. He'd been born in Scotland in 1906 and come to live in Australia with his family at the age of four. He'd grown up in Goodna in Queensland before moving to Sydney and joining the New South Wales Police in March 1929. Now, in their civvies and bathing suits and slippers, Armed only with towels, these two off-duty police constables and friends were running through the streets of Waverley towards the house of a gun-toting madman who'd already shot one of their own. As they ran, news of Constable Allen's shooting reached his colleagues and mates at Waverley Police Station. His friend, Constable Thomas Johnson, swung into action. Constable Johnson was also young, just 23 years old, and had been born at Lake Bolac in Victoria. At the age of eight, he'd lost his father, who was one of the original Anzacs, and killed at Gallipoli shortly after the first landing. As an adult, Thomas Johnson moved to New South Wales, working in the country and then in Sydney as a telegraph operator for the Postal Service. Then, in September 1928, on the same day as Norman Allen, he joined the New South Wales Police. Just a week ago, his wife had given birth to their first son. Now, with a colleague, veteran Sergeant James Seary, aged 52, Johnson jumped on a motorbike and sped towards the Lawson Street house. On Oxford Street, Ambulance men loaded Constable Norman Allen into their vehicle and raced him to nearby St Vincent's Hospital. But there was nothing they could do and he died of his wounds as they tried to carry him into the hospital. Now a cop killer, John Kennedy arrived at the front gate of his Lawson Street house and whirled around with his rifle to again aim it at still unarmed Detective Constable McGill. 
Again, he didn't shoot and instead, with a laugh, ran inside his house and bolted the heavy front door against his pursuers. Catching up, Bondi bloke Steve Robinson gave Constable Allen's service pistol to Detective Constable McGill. Meanwhile, Constables Andrews and Denham were racing through neighbouring properties to Kennedy's backyard. Seeing them, a woman shouted a warning, quote, Look out, he's raving mad. He's been running about the yard naked lately. Reaching Kennedy's backyard ahead of Constable Denham, Constable Andrews saw how he could get into the house. A narrow flight of steps led up to a back door, which was flanked on one side by the brick wall of a lavatory and a washroom on the other. Another on-duty policeman, Constable Henry Rolfe, was already in the backyard. Constable Andrews said to him, quote, We will go in and get him. Constable Rolfe, No, wait a minute. He's got it on us. He can see us and we can't see him. Constable Andrews, give me your gun. I will go. Constable Rolfe refused, telling him not to rush a madman. But Constable Andrews didn't listen. And just as Constable Denham arrived and called out, go easy, he ran up the stairs. When Constable Andrews reached the landing, Kennedy roared from inside, don't come in here. But Constable Andrews opened the door. Kennedy fired twice at a range of just six feet, with both bullets hitting the young constable in the chest, before he turned the rifle on Constable Denham, who'd followed his mate up the stairs. Constable Denham jumped out of the way before the madman could fire. In the kitchen, Constable Andrews grappled with Kennedy. At the front of the house, trying to break in the front door, Constable Thomas Johnson and Sergeant James Seary heard the shots from inside the house, followed by the sounds of a wild fight. Then there was silence. Kennedy, huge, heavy, unwounded and driven by mad energy, used his seven-inch bowie knife to finish off Constable Andrews. Unaware of this, Constable Denham rushed around the side of the house, got Constable Allen's pistol from Detective Constable McGill and raced back to the back door. Inside the house, hearing the police trying to break in, Kennedy walked along the dim hallway and took aim at the constable he could see through the front door's smashed lead light. At a range of just seven feet, he raised his rifle and pulled the trigger. Nothing happened. The gun had jammed. In that split second, Constable Johnson aimed his automatic pistol through the smashed lead light and fired. His bullet hit Kennedy in the left side of his chest and the big man let out a scream, staggered back and disappeared into a bedroom. Constable Johnson and Sergeant Seary broke in through the front while Constable Denham came in through the back. In the kitchen, they saw the horror that Kennedy had visited on Constable Andrews, whose head had almost been severed from his body. The police entered the bedroom cautiously, not knowing if the murderer still posed a threat. They found Kennedy lying on a bed, rifle at his side, alive but bleeding heavily. Though seriously wounded, he was still filled with berserk anger as he was taken from his house to the ambulance. 
from The Sun newspaper. Quote, Before he could be placed in the wagon, he fought frantically with almost unbelievable strength. Numerous police had to assist the two ambulance officers and eventually they overpowered their captive, but even then he had to be strapped to a stretcher in a special open wagon. He screamed with rage and resumed his terrific struggles, but could not break away from his bonds. At St. Vincent's Hospital, a magistrate took John Thomas Kennedy's dying deposition. And now the full extent of his mental illness was laid bare. He declared to the magistrate that his name was Lord Judge John Kennedy and he said he'd gone into the McSimmons store to get 100 cigarettes which had been stolen from him in 1888 and 1893. Quote, I had a rifle with me to protect myself as an order had been given to kill me and I intended to use that rifle if necessary. Asked who wanted to kill him, he said, quote, the criminal police of Montreal, Canada. Kennedy recounted being stopped by Constable Allen, who said, quote, What have you got that rifle for? And he'd replied, quote, It's none of your business. Gasping for breath, Kennedy said Constable Allen had tried to arrest him, and so he'd shot him. When he got home, he said, three or four more constables arrived to try to kill him, so he'd only been defending himself by killing Constable Andrews. He said, quote, I had to kill him. He was executed according to law. I passed sentence on him and had to execute him according to that law. Asked about his life, he said he'd been born in Sydney, had gone to Canada before moving back, and lived by himself in Waverley. Quote, I'm isolated, alone. As he lay dying in St Vincent's Hospital, John Kennedy's brother-in-law came to see him. Kennedy raved to this man, quote, How many Germans have you killed, Jack? Not enough. Go and do your duty like me. Get some more. Indicating to a police constable standing guard, he said, quote, There's another German I've got to fix up. John Thomas Kennedy died at 9.30 that night. The events of Saturday the 3rd of January 1931 made for sensational front pages all over Australia. The next day's Sydney Sunday pictorial headline read, Killer dies after tempest of bloodlust. Broodings of 16 years burst into frenzy of murder. Maniac's delusions that his destiny was to kill Germans. Mind unhinged by wartime jibes. And that was one of the more restrained headlines. On Monday the 5th of January 1931, New South Wales paid tribute to the slain policeman. Inside Woodcoffield's funeral parlour chapel on George Street, their silver-mounted caskets rested on trestles side by side, surrounded by loved ones, including Constable Allen's widow and Constable Andrew's sister. Thousands of people lined George Street as hearses took the coffins to the mortuary station at Central, with the platform thronged as the funeral train 
took the coffins to Rookwood Cemetery, where yet thousands more mourners waited. The Sydney Morning Herald reported, quote, The scene was unforgettable. A solid mass of people crowded the thoroughfares. Presently, the mounted troopers urged their restive horses forward and, with the deep roll of muffled drums, the cortege moved off. Thousands of hats were removed. Handel's Dead March in Saul was played by the police band. Behind the band came a contingent of foot police under the direction of Superintendent Leary. 200 men drawn from the various stations marched behind. Then came the hearses, the wreath-laden carriages and the chief mourners. At the graveside service in the Church of England section of Rookwood where the men were laid to rest side by side, the police band played hymns, Lead Kindly Light and Abide With Me. Reverend Frederick Riley's tribute included, quote, We are met here today to pay honour to the memory of two men who were comrades of yours, men whom we all respected and loved. Let us remember that these two men died in the carrying out of their duty. They served their king and country as men and soldiers who fall for their king on the battlefield. They saw their duty and the fear of death could not deter them. These two young men, Norman Thomas Allen and Ernest Andrews, died in the execution of their duty. There is no higher glory to which a man can aspire. We pray to God that those who have been so suddenly bereaved may share the comfort which we know these two brave men are experiencing in the nearer presence of God. The following day, John Thomas Kennedy was buried in Rookwood's Roman Catholic section, his plain brown coffin lowered into the ground as a dozen relatives sobbed. In the days following the death of the police constables, there was enough discussion about whether they had acted recklessly that during another memorial, this one in Waverley, Reverend Riley felt compelled to say, quote, Shall we say that they flung their lives away? Surely not. Rather, with proud tears must we thank God for the magnificent spirit of daring and self-sacrifice with which he endowed them. And so they share the same spirit of daring of the Arctic explorer, the aviator, the doctor and other heroes. Could the double tragedy have been prevented? Perhaps so if worried neighbours had informed police about their concerns. That said, it's entirely possible that John Kennedy would have shot whichever officers were unfortunate enough to come knocking on his door. As for Constable Norman Allen, his death would seem to only have been preventable if he'd drawn his pistol and ordered Kennedy to drop his weapon. In the 21st century, that would happen. Yet, on that day in 1931, as evidenced by the mixed reactions of pedestrians, some of who reportedly thought the man with the gun was just playing a bit of a joke, Constable Allen clearly didn't think his life was at serious risk. A fatal mistake that may also have been the result of him knowing John Kennedy and thinking him a harmless eccentric. 
Constable Ernest Andrews' life likely would have only been spared if he'd remained down in the backyard rather than going up the steps. His bravado may have arisen in part from his recent experience in peacefully arresting a disturbed man with a gun. And even if Constable Rolf had given Constable Andrews his pistol, from the sequence of events it seems probable that Constable Andrews still wouldn't have had a chance to use it at the top of the stairs before being shot by Kennedy. Constable Adam Denham came in for some criticism for not going through the door after his mate, but he was unarmed and if he hadn't dived out of the way, it's almost certain that he too would have been killed. Constable Denham was praised for his actions at the coronial inquest that also found Constable Johnson had been justified in killing John Kennedy. Side note. Adam Denham would soon change New South Wales policing in a major way, and we'll look at his life and legacy in an upcoming episode. In October 1931, a monument to the fallen officers was unveiled at their gravesite in Rookwood Cemetery. Nine feet in height, the sandstone pillar has a bronze plate that is inscribed... Quote, in memory of Constable Norman Thomas Allen and Constable Ernest Andrews, who, while in the execution of their duty, were shot dead by an armed offender at Bondi Junction on 3rd Jan 1931, erected by the Government of New South Wales. I'm Michael Adams, and you've been listening to Forgotten Australia. As always, thanks for listening. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Mm. Mm. 